It was exactly 77 years ago, this past Sunday, June the 6th, when Allied forces stormed the beaches at Normandy in an all-out assault on Hitler's embedded forces there. In the Omaha Beach assault on June the 6th, 1944, in that one beach assault of the five, casualties were counted in the thousands on both sides. One report I recently looked at said they still don't know an official death count. For those who have never been in war, for those who have never experienced that, even though it was a Hollywood production at the time, the 1998 film Saving Private Ryan gives a pretty graphic and detailed idea of the absolute and all-out unimaginable horrors of that invasion. In fact, so graphically depicted was Saving Private Ryan in the opening series that Karen and I could not watch it. We tried at one point many, many, many years ago and, and could not get through it. But imagine being a young soldier that day that did survive and lived to tell about it. Imagine living through that unspeakably horrific ordeal, coming back to the States, living your life, and 50 years later, going back to the beaches of Normandy, where you saw such horror, such death, such destruction. What would be going through your mind? Maybe some of the friends and buddies you lost when the front end of those transport ships comes down and they were just raked by gunfire. Maybe you would hear in your ears and see in your mind some of what you endured that day, some of what you saw that day. Maybe you would just stand there and cry. You would be thinking perhaps that you were walking on special or in some way, I, I mean no irreverence by the usage of this term, but in some way maybe thinking you were walking on sacred ground where so much blood had been spilled. Our son, Chris, is still in Hawaii and being there, Pearl Harbor military base, he said, that base is a really eerie place at night. <laughs> and I can imagine that it might be. He said there's still houses there. They boarded up most of them, but there's still houses there from the Japanese attack of Pearl Harbor that while they have plywooded most of them up, he said there's, there's houses there that you can still see and, and go into where the bullets strafed. He said there's still pots and pans sitting there in the kitchen where the bullets strafed. Or, third scenario, what if you as a Christian, and maybe some of you have done this, knowing the Bible as well as you do, have maybe had the opportunity to go to Israel, go to Jerusalem, to retrace some of those steps, to 
maybe make your way down the Via Della Rosa, the way of suffering as it's referred to, that Jesus is believed to have taken, or that they are believed to have taken Jesus that Friday morning, maybe going to the hill where he was crucified, knowing that that dirt had soaked up the blood of the Son of God. Would you think maybe you're standing on a special place at the least? I realize there's nothing there in the ground that makes it special, but a very special or sacred piece of geography, perhaps. In all three of those scenarios, there would be a, a certain sense of humbling reverence, wouldn't there, to stand there? There would be a sense of, of humility, a sense of being in the very presence of something far beyond yourself. Why don't you take that idea and put it on steroids, as it were? Perhaps keep that same sense or that same thought or that same concept in mind as we continue throughout the lesson tonight and especially at the end. Moses. Moses must have gotten a somewhat similar, although much magnified, concept or idea as that as he experienced the unfolding of the events in Exodus chapter 3. Please turn there with me. Certainly that he was standing on sacred ground. In Exodus chapter 3, the first six verses read as follows. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord, not an angel, the angel, there's a huge difference. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but, but the bush wasn't consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. Moses said, here I am. Then he, that is God said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look upon God. Several things we would note from that passage tonight. Number one, the angel of the Lord. You can do an entire study in the Old Testament, but the angel of the Lord was Jesus. In fact, you can see that the angel of the Lord was God when you look at the fact that the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame in verse 2, but it was the Lord that called out from the midst of the bush, meaning the same thing. The angel of the Lord and, and God were one and the same, and verses 3 and 4 confirm that. And as you read down through, and there's other places in the Old Testament that would tell us that very same thing. The second thing I'd like for us to notice, obviously, is in verse 5. Holy ground. This exact phrase, holy ground, the exact phrase is only used twice in the entire Bible, once in the Old Testament and once in the New Testament. 
there's a very similar wording and very similar situation encountered in Joshua chapter 5, if you would turn there with me. In Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 through 15, Very similar situation in wording, but not the exact phrase. Where it says, and it came to pass, verse 13 of Joshua 5, when Joshua was by Jericho, that he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? So he said, no but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take your sandal off your foot for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. The only other place that the term, actual term holy ground is used besides Exodus 3 is in Acts chapter 7 in verse 33 when Stephen is telling the story of Moses in the burning bush. The big question I want for us to consider tonight, even though we all know the answer, but the question I want us to look, the, I'll get this right in a minute. The question I want us to answer, even though we all know the answer, but I want us to look deeper into, is this. Why? What made that particular piece of ground holy. What made that particular piece of ground so holy? One thing. One thing alone. God was there. God was there. That made it holy ground because God is the very essence of holiness. He is holiness. It isn't just something that he exudes. It isn't just something that, that he shares. It's what he is. It is, it, is, it is who he is. It is the essence of God. He is holiness. So as we sing in the song, wherever God is, is holy. And, and the lesson for us, I'm going to give you the, high, the, the, the punchline of the lesson early tonight, and then we'll look at some other text. The lesson for us, therefore, has to be that we never, ever, ever take for granted what we do here in coming together to worship, to commune with, and to be in the presence of the Lord God Almighty each week. We must never take that lightly. We must never take that laxly. We must never take that irreverently. We don't just come to church. We don't even just come to worship. Is God in the presence of his people when they meet to worship him, yes or no? Yes, we come together for an appointment with the God who is holiness. We can never approach this lightly or laxly or with anything less 
than the absolute understanding that we are standing on holy ground because God is with his church. We must never enter into, any, into worship with anything less than the deepest respect and the most divine level of reverence. We can't just say, I'm going to, well, I'm going to church tonight. No, no. I'm going to a place where the God of holiness is going to be present. What a privilege. People look at going to church sometimes like it's, what a privilege that sinners like you and I get to be in the presence of a holy God. We come together to worship him and our worship is acceptable to him when we approach him with the proper attitude. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the Lord God Almighty. He is the King of glory. The lesson for us has to be that solemn awe and only the deepest respect, seriousness, and humility of spirit is the only appropriate attitude for coming into his presence to worship him. Because wherever the Lord is, that place is holy. And as much reverence as some of these people may have that, that visit some of these sites I mentioned in the beginning, this is way beyond that. When we come to worship God, we should have this reverence and respect that would far exceed that soldier going back to Normandy or somebody going to Israel and, and, or, or somebody going to Pearl Harbor, maybe even that served there. This should surpass God. Every time we come together, it should be bigger than that because God is bigger than that. Look what Isaiah said in Isaiah 6. I think sometimes because we continually come together and we do this and it becomes routine, we let it become routine. And brethren, we have got to understand what a sacred, holy thing it is to come together to worship God. Look, in, in Isaiah chapter 6, it says, verses 1 through 5, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew, and one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see Isaiah's recognition of God's glory, his recognition of the holiness of God. He cries, I am undone. I do not deserve to be here. Brethren, and one of us deserves to be able to worship God. What a privilege it is to stand on holy ground. One of the seraphim flew to me and having in his hand a live coal which he had taken with the tongs from the altar, he touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips, your iniquity is taken away, your sin is purged. Are your sins forgiven? Are your sins forgiven? Praise God, you have the privilege of being what Isaiah was in the very presence of God and you get to do it twice on Sunday in a special way. I know God is always with his people, but in a special way when we come together to worship him. Listen, 
Isaiah's attitude was one that he recognized what he was doing. He recognized the holiness of God. And it is that type of attitude, it is that type of reverence, it is that type of humility in recognition of who God is that makes us the kind of worshipers God's looking for. He says that in John 4. In John 4, 23 and 24, it says, The hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship. God is looking for people who understand. They worship God in spirit and truth with the proper spirit. That means with the proper understanding, the proper spirit of humility, recognizing the holiness of God. God's looking for those people. Not only do they worship in spirit, but they worship in truth. They truly worship him, and they worship him according to the truth because they are humble before him like Isaiah. They are just overwhelmed by the awesomeness and the holiness of God, and they understand that they're in a holy place when they're with God. Removing his sandals due to standing on holy ground would have been known to Moses because that is what the Egyptian priests practiced before they entered into their temples as well. So Moses would have known about this. I want to read to you uh, a long paragraph from something I read years ago. Don't remember who the author was, but listen carefully. It says, and Moses' sandals being ordered to be put off from his feet show that those who would draw near to God for worship ought to be of pure and holy lives. We see this in the New Testament reflected in 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15, when it talks about men lifting holy hands and those sorts of things. It's talking about holy lives. Hence, the author of this article went on to say, in later times, the temple being the place of the divine residence, the priests there performed their services barefooted. Nor might a common person enter into the temple with his shoes on. To this day, the Jews go to their synagogues barefooted on the Day of Atonement. Some do, some don't, but it is a, a common practice. And the Ethiopian Christians never go into their places of public worship except with naked feet. The practice of removing one's sandals before entering a temple, a palace, or even private apartments of a house both was and is universal in the East. The rationale being that shoes or sandals have the dust or dirt attached to them. People there take off their shoes or sandals before entering these places, and especially houses of worship, just as we do our hats. But the Eastern idea is not precisely the same as the Western. With us, the removal of the hat is an expression of reverence for the God who is worshipped in that place. With them, the removal of the shoes is a confession of the personal dirt and defilement and their conscious unworthiness to stand in the presence of such a perfect and unspotted holiness. So Moses is required by the God who is holiness to remove his sandals for the place where he's standing is holy ground. And so with the rest of the sermon tonight, what I want to do is to take a look at what it means to be in the presence of the Lord of glory and the God of holiness, which is our title, in the presence of the Lord of glory and the God of holiness, what that means. Turn to me in your Bibles, if you would, to begin with Exodus chapter 15. What does it mean to be in the presence of the Lord of glory and the God of holiness? Exodus chapter 15, beginning at verse 11. Right after the Israelites have seen the waters 
Come back up over the Egyptians. They've been freed from their Egyptian bondage and Pharaoh's armies have been drowned in the sea. We pick up in Exodus chapter 15, verse 11, where they say, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you? Here we go. Glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders. Again, that's Exodus 15 and verse 11. Talks about God, you are glorious in holiness. Verse 12, you stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them, for in your mercy, you in your mercy, talked about that this morning, have led forth the people whom you have redeemed, you have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. Brethren, I got one question. If those people who had just come through the Red Sea and had been redeemed, in that sense, and they have seen God's mighty power, his mercy expressed to them because he has redeemed them from Egyptian bondage, how much more should we appreciate the glory of God's holiness that we have been redeemed eternally from slavery to sin? We should have even more of an appreciation for the gloriousness of his holiness, verse 11. Turn to me to Exodus 24. Exodus chapter 24. I want to begin in verse 12. We're going to allude to this particular situation a couple of times here. Exodus 24, 12, then the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and, and be there and I'll give you tablets of stone and the law and commandments which I have written that you may teach them. So Moses arose with his assistant, Joshua. Moses went up to the mountain of God. He said to the elders, wait here for us until we come back to you. Indeed, Aaron and Hur are with you. If any man has a difficulty, let him go to them. And Moses went up into the mountain and a cloud covered the mountain. Now, the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and a cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud, the sight of the glory. Second time we've seen that word, verse 16, verse 17. The sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So Moses went up and stayed 40 days and 40 nights. As we talk about God's glory resting on the mountain, the sight of his, his glory, is, is like this consuming fire on the top of the mountain. What exactly are we talking about? What are we talking about when we're talking about God's glory? It's a term we use a lot. What does it mean? What are we talking about? His glory rested there. The Hebrew word translated glory in this particular passage occurs some 200 times in the Old Testament. And here's what it means. It means abundance, riches, reputation, reverence, splendor, dignity, honor, and glory. It means God's essence, if you will. His splendor, his dignity, his honor. It's a wonder it was contained to the top of the mountain. <laughs> Should have been throughout the universe We're talking about God. Now, I'm going to 
Go back and read those two verses and insert those words for glory to give us a better idea of what it's talking about. Now, verse 16, the abundance, riches, reputation, reverence, splendor, dignity, honor, and glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai. Does that give us a better picture? And the cloud covered it six days, and on the seventh day he called the Moses out of the midst of the cloud. The sight of the abundance, the riches, the reputation, the reverence, the splendor, the dignity, the honor, and the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Moses was in a holy place, wasn't he? No wonder when he would review Israelite history, he would say what he did in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 23 through 29. Please turn there. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 23 through 29. In a, in a review of what they had gone through, he says the following. Deuteronomy 5, beginning at verse 23. Moses, recapping this very event, says this. So it was when you heard the voice from the midst of the darkness while the mountain was burning with fire that you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders, and you said, surely the Lord our God has shown us his glory, that is his abundance, his reverence, his splendor, his dignity, his honor, and his greatness. And we have heard his voice from the midst of the fire. We have seen this day that God speaks with a man, yet he still lives. Now therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, we'll die. For who is there of all flesh who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and lived? Well, Moses. They, but they told Moses, they had said, you go near, verse 27, and hear all that the Lord our God may say and tell us all that the Lord our God says to do and we'll hear and do it. Then the Lord heard the voice of your words, Moses says to the people, when you spoke to me and the Lord said to me, I've heard the words, I've heard the voice of the words of this people which they have spoken to you, they're right in all that they have spoken. Verse 29 is where the rubber meets the road. God says, these people were right. They were right when they beheld my glory. But he says in verse 29, oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep all my commandments that it might be well with them and their children forever. Do you hear God lamenting? God said, oh, they were right. They saw my glory. They were properly humbled by my glory and greatness. Verse 24, they were properly humbled. They understood. God says, oh, oh, that they would only always, because if they always understood my glory, if they always understood who I am, they'd always keep my commandments, they'd always be obedient, they'd always, they'd always follow me and they'd always love me if they'd never lose sight of who I am. Oh, that they would only continue to do that, but we know they didn't. But that's the key. Brethren, sometimes when we come to church a couple times on Sunday, we can forget that we're on holy ground. And, and, and when we lose sight of that, that's when we begin to lose sight of, of who God is that leads to that, and then that leads to us not being as in love with God as we ought to be. And God said, oh man, I, I, not saying oh man, he's just saying, oh, I wish that these men would always fear me that way, would always love me, would always understand my glory, my presence, my honor, my dignity, my holiness. Listen, when we understand that word, when we understand the Hebrew word 
for God's glory. It gives us a lot better insight into a lot of Old and New Testament passages, and I, and I want to share just a few. Go back with me into Exodus 29, if you would. I'll just allude to some and give you the notes on others. I think it's important that we take a quick look at them. Exodus chapter 29, as far as the burnt offering is concerned in verses 42 through 46. Exodus 29, 42 through 46. says this, this shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord where I will meet you and speak with you. And there I will meet the children of Israel and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. Do you see it? The tabernacle will be sanctified by my presence, by my honor, by my dignity, by who I am. It'll be, it'll be holy ground as it were because I'll be there. There was nothing special except that they had done it according to God's will, but the, the building materials for the tabernacle, yes, they were all in accordance with God's word and all that, but, but without God being there, what was it? If God had never come near it, it would be a really elaborate tent, wouldn't it? But it's so much beyond that. There has never been a building constructed in all of humanity that was as beautiful as the tabernacle when God was living there. Why? Because God was living there. That's why. And he wanted them to understand that. The tabernacle would be sanctified and consecrated and set apart as special and holy because of God's abundance and riches and reputation, his essence, his splendor, his dignity, and his glory would be right there with him. You recall that Moses at one point requested to see the Lord face to face when he was hidden in the cleft of the rock. You remember that? Exodus 13, uh, Exodus 33, 13 through 23. I'm not going to turn there. But Moses was hidden in the cleft of the rock and he couldn't see God's face. Why? Because he couldn't see God's glory. He couldn't handle God's full-on, face-to-face, abundance and riches and splendor and glory and honor and dignity. David, the man after God's own heart, he seemed to understand the meaning of God's glory when the people planned and, and they gave gifts for the temple, in 1 Chronicles 29, David expressed God's glory. That is, he expressed God's abundance and his riches and his splendor and his dignity when he blessed the Lord before all the assembly. I want you to see what David said about God. See that he recognized this. Turn with me to 1 Chronicles 29. David got it. David got it. He understood who he was dealing with. He understood the glory of God. All that God is, his essence, his presence, everything that God is, he, he understood as much as a man can because in, in 1 Chronicles 29, look what he says in verses 10 through 12. Therefore David blessed the Lord before all the assembly and David said, Blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, the majesty. Did he get glory? Did he understand the word? He understood the word. All that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Riches and honor come from you. You reign over all. Your hand is power and might. In your hand it is to make great, and you give strength to all. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your name, brethren. That's what we should come to church every Sunday, twice a day, with that attitude right there. 
That's understanding that you're on holy ground. In Psalm 24, the Psalms are full. Oh, please turn to me to Psalm 24. David again. David understood it. Now, David lost sight of it at one point in his life that we know about, but David understood it. Psalm 24, this is who we're dealing with. This is what makes the place where he is holy. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord or who may stand in his holy place? Who can possibly stand before God? Verse four, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift up, you everlasting doors, and the king of glory will come in. Who's the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He's the king of glory. David got it. David understood what it meant to be in the presence of God. David would add in the Psalms, the heavens declare the glory, that is, the abundance, the riches, the essence, the power, and the majesty of the Lord, and the firmament shows his handiwork, Psalm 19 and verse 1. The writer of Psalm 97 would say very similar in verses 1 through 6. Psalms has so much to say about God's glory. David, if I may share one or two more, look at Psalm 29. When you understand what a priceless, unbelievable, un, un, uh, you just can't, unimaginable, get it through your head. If you really stop and think about it, what it means to be in the presence of God. When you understand his power and his glory, and, and when you do that, we need to do what David said here in Psalm 29, 1 through 4. He says, give unto the Lord, O you mighty ones, give unto the Lord glory and strength. Recognize who he is. Give unto the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. You know we get to do that. Do you know we get to do that? Do you know if we're Christians and we're walking in the light and we're confessing our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. We get to worship God in the beauty of holiness. You know why? Because when God looks at us, he doesn't see any of our sin. Isn't that awesome? He sees the blood of Jesus. I don't know what you've done in your life, but I know what I've done in mine. And my sins separated me from God. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, same way yours did. But I get to worship God. I don't just get to come to church. I get to worship God to stand on holy ground because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is glory. I get to do, I have the privilege of worshiping the Lord in the beauty of holiness because when he looks at me covered by the blood of Christ, he sees holiness. Our God is an awesome God. We must always remember and recognize in reverence and respect and honor that we are in the presence of God. We must recognize 
his presence, his authority, his power, and his testimonies as we enter into his blood-bought house for obedient and acceptable New Testament spirit and truth worship. Look in Psalm 96. This is what it means to understand the holy ground, and I use that term figuratively, that we stand on when we assemble together and the Lord is with us. Psalm 96, oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Brethren, how can we come together on Sundays and the songs are being sung and not sing? How can we do that? How can Christians sit in the pews and not song leaders? You've, you've seen some time, brethren, we can't do that. We're in the presence of God. God wants us to sing to him. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. How can we not tell others what God has done for us? Declare his glory among the nations, his wonders among all the people. For the Lord is great, and he's greatly to be praised. He's to be feared above all gods. All the gods of the people are idols, but the Lord made heaven. He made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Give to the Lord, O families of the people. Give to the Lord glory and strength. Give him the glory to his name. Bring an offering. Come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble. Do we ever walk into services trembling? We should. Spiritually, we should walk into this place trembling spiritually that we get to be in the presence of God and worship him in the glory and the beauty of holiness if we understand who we're dealing with and what he has done for us. We only appropriately tremble before him when we understand what it means to be in his presence when we therefore reverence and respect and honor and obey exactly what his word says. Tonight, do we really understand and appreciate just exactly who it is we're dealing with and what a privilege it is to stand on holy ground, not because this building is anything special than more special than any other, but because God is with his people. Do we understand and appreciate what it means to be and to worship in the very presence, the very presence of the Lord of glory and the God of holiness every time we come to services? I know some of you thought that was the invitation. I'm not quite there yet, but I will be in a minute. This is, this is the end. Check this out. We know from everything I've said tonight, we know the story about Moses on the mountain, and we know the people just looked up and they were terrified. And in the New Testament, it tells us Moses was terrified too. The sight was so terrified. Listen, if you've led the people through the Red Sea, it's going to take a lot to make you frightened, isn't it? If you're going to hold your stick out, you're going to say, oh, I want to, right? And you're going to lead all these people through there. It'd probably take quite a sight to scare you. Moses, it says in Hebrews 12, was terrified. That must have been something. But despite everything they saw, despite everything David said about worshiping God in the spirit of holiness, brethren, we got so much more than they got. Right? 
We got a better savior, we got a better sacrifice, we got a better day, we got a better covenant, we got a better everything. In fact, when we look at all of the gratitude they had and all the understanding they had about what the glory of the Lord was all about, we ought to understand it on even greater terms, even bigger for us. In fact, the Bible says that. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 29 says, For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire into blackness and darkest and tempest. You haven't come to the sound of the trumpet and the voice of the words that were so much that, that they begged that it wouldn't be spoken to them. For they couldn't endure what was commanded. So terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. He says, but, but as scary as that was and as awesome as God's power was at that point, that isn't what you've come to. He said, you've come to something a whole lot bigger than that. The next few verses in Hebrews 12. Verse 22, he says, but you have come. You haven't come to all that, but you have come to Mount Zion. You have come to the city of the living God. You have come to the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, brethren, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn. That exceeds the mountain. The relationship that we have with God exceeds that that they had. We have come to the General Assembly, the Church of Jesus Christ, the Church of the Firstborn. We've also come to that church and had our names registered in heaven to the God and Judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus we have come, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the blood speaks better than that of Abel. As much as they understood God's holiness, we're in a far more holy place. Because God lives in us, right? Wow. Wow. That's why he goes on to say in verse 23 of Hebrews 12, same chapter, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. Brethren, if you've never obeyed the gospel, well, obviously if you're, never mind, let me start over. If you've never obeyed the gospel, don't refuse him who speaks. Don't refuse this Lord of glory, this King of kings. They didn't escape who refused him who spoke on earth. How much more shall we escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven? So if you haven't obeyed the gospel, you need to do that. If you haven't obeyed the gospel, Hebrews 12 goes on and also says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. If we've obeyed the gospel, we need to understand who we're dealing with and we need to respond appropriately, having grace that we can serve him acceptably with reverence and godly fear because he is God. Tonight, do you tremble at what the word of God says when it comes to being saved or are you somebody who's heard the invitation many times and you just kind of shirk it off? It doesn't make you tremble. Doesn't even make you think twice. Boy, if that's you, you need to really think about God. Have you become a part of that New Testament kingdom that cannot be shaken, that, that general assembly, the church of the firstborn from the dead, the church of Jesus Christ, and had your name registered in heaven by being baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of sins? If you have, are you serving him acceptably with reverence and godly fear? Do you understand what it means to come to worship and have God amongst you? You're standing on holy ground because God's here.
Wow. If you have a need to respond tonight to this God in answering any of those questions, please come to the front right now as we stand and sing this song.